How many are with us on Wednesday nights? We're doing our class on Wednesday night. We've been studying biblical evangelism. Next week is our last session for Wednesday, that particular, that particular topic. And I tell you, as I've been going through this, and I think some of you who are with us, it's kind of been an eye-opener for me. It's just really grabbed my attention and, and, and challenged everything that I've ever, I don't know, been taught, but have experienced and have done. And in fact, it's so important that I think that I'm going to try to encapsulate that into one sermon. The course is roughly eight hours. So, hope you guys had a big breakfast. Now, I'm not going to keep you eight hours, but we're going to talk about it a little bit. And uh, if I were to ask you a question, I'm going to give you a Reader's Digest version of that. If I were to ask you a question, have you ever been in a church where they've had an altar call or an invitation and you have heard a specific phrase or a promise from the preacher? Something to the effect that Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. How many have ever heard that? Usually an altar call or somewhere during the sermon. How about this one? Everyone has a God-shaped hole in their heart that only God can fill through Christ. How many have heard that phrase? That's all I, that's, I've heard that and sentences like that for as long as I can remember. Do you know that Jesus never said either of those things? He never promised either of those things when he talked to people. Jesus never used the blessings and promises of God as a draw card, as a reason to come to Christ. What did he do? What, did, what was his approach? give you a couple of examples real quickly from God's word. The woman at the well. You all know that story, right? Woman comes to the well, draws water while Jesus is there. Jesus starts talking to her about things in the world, and he swings it around to salvation. Talks about living water. Jesus tells her, okay, go get your husband, bring him back, and I'll tell you about it. And she says, well, I don't have a husband now. And Jesus says, you're right, you've had five, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. What did he do? He calls out her sin. He tells her her sin, and then part of that, the living water was, he was showing himself as the Messiah, the one to forgive her of that sin. Next one is a woman caught in adultery. So they catch this woman, the Bible says, in the act. I gotta tell you, that'd be kind of embarrassing, I'm thinking. And another thing I mentioned is there's no mention of the guy. And the, the law says they were both equally guilty and both should have been, you know, stoned. But they only brought the woman out. So Jesus, you know the story, says, okay, you who without the first stone or first sin cast a first stone. And then they all walk away because they realize they're all sinners. And then Jesus says to her that God has a great plan for your life. And just say this prayer with me. Is that what he said? No, he says, he tells her, basically, quit sinning. John 8, 10 says, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus says. Go now and leave your life of sin. And basically, he says, repent of your sin. Stop doing it. Don't ask for forgiveness and keep doing it. It means ask for forgiveness and stop doing it. 
Then we have the rich young ruler. Matthew 19 says, someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good things must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. Only God is good. But to answer your question, you can receive eternal life if you keep the commandments. He doesn't say, you'll have a wonderful life. He doesn't say, you can have eternal life by filling your heart with me. He says, you can have eternal life if you keep the commandments. Then he goes and asks them, which ones? You know, that's kind of a, kind of a snazzy way of trying to get at Jesus. How many have ever told your kids, go pick up your toys? And your kids say, which ones? All of them. He's wanting Jesus to qualify them and say, well, only some of them. So he says, which one? The man replied. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm looking around, probably most of us have kept most of those. Nobody's here murdered anybody. Don't know about adultery. Don't know about stealing. Don't know about lying. Only we know that. So I'm sure this guy is like anybody else. He's done all of those things thinking that he hasn't. Now, does Jesus lie when he says that these things are necessary to have eternal life? No. What he is saying is you have to keep every commandment all the time forever. You obey them and you don't sin not one time and you can enter heaven. How many of us can say that we've not ever broken one commandment, ever? Obviously, nobody can say that. Eternal life requires perfection in obeying God's moral laws. He's telling this guy that even though he thinks he's a good guy, he's not. Because he thinks he's obeyed these commandments when in reality he hasn't. And then he goes on the challenge and he says in Matthew 19, 21, Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all you have and give money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sadly because he had many possessions. What was money to him? Money was an idol. Money to him was more important than God. And that's basically the definition of idol. Whatever you have in your life that's more important to you then God is an idol. And they can be good things. Your family. If your family is more important to you than your relationship with God, your family is an idol. If your job, if your house, if your possessions, if they are more important to you than God, then they're idols. And we've broken that commandment. And he was showing this guy that he hasn't kept all the commandments because he has an idol in his life, and that's money. Jesus points out their sins to show them that before God they are guilty and therefore not qualified for heaven. Which, what's that mean? If you're not in heaven, where are you? In hell. Then he shows them the remedy for that sin. He shows them that they're guilty, and then he shows them the remedy for that 
Now, you may be thinking, what's the difference? Here's something that grabbed my attention during this lesson. I asked the teens this today. Why did Jesus die? We're coming up on Easter, Resurrection Day. Why did Jesus die? Did Jesus die to give you a better life? Was that his reason for dying? Did Jesus die to make you happy? The purpose of his death was to forgive us of our sins, to make the payment that we can't make. That was the sole purpose of his death. The joy and the peace are all byproducts of us having that relationship with him, but that was not why he came. We have joy not because our lives are going well. We have joy because we have a relationship with the creator and we know that when this life is over, we're going to be with him. Now, I don't know if I've given this example. This is the example they use in the chorus. I may have shared this this morning. I don't know, but I'm going to share it again. There's a great example they have from the, the curriculum. We're ringing a little bit. Am I, uh... Suppose you're on a plane. Stewardess comes up and gives you a parachute to wear. Says, wear this parachute. This will make your flight better. It'll just be a joyful flight with this parachute on. So you put the parachute on, and you're sitting there for a while, and it's a long flight, and you realize, yeah, this, this parachute is not comfortable at all. It's, it's, it's a nuisance. And then people start looking at you and snickering at you and making you feel like a fool because you're wearing this parachute. And finally, you realize, this parachute is not making my life better. I'm not making this flight better. I'm taking it off. Suppose the stewardess goes up to another person and hands him a parachute and says, here, put this parachute on because in about 10 minutes we're jumping 30,000 feet. So you put the parachute on. And you don't care how comfortable it is. You don't care what people are laughing at you or whatever they're doing. You don't care about that because you didn't put the parachute on for a better flight. You put the parachute on to save you when you jump 30,000 feet. So if a stewardess comes up and spills hot water on you, or there's a crying baby next to you, or someone gets sick next to you, it has nothing to do with why you're wearing the parachute. You're wearing the parachute to save you from the jump. When we come to Christ, we come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. So if your life doesn't go right, that's not why you came to Christ. You came to Christ to forgive you of your sins to make sure you're going to heaven. Anything else that happens to us here has no relationship to the, to the parachute we're wearing. Because that's not why you came to Christ. If we come to Christ because you want joy and happiness and blessings, and those things don't happen to you, what happens? You take the parachute off. Hey, that guy promised me a better life if, if I came to Jesus. You know what? My life isn't better. I, I don't, I'm taking this off. Because they came from the wrong motive. They came for the blessings, not for the forgiveness of sins. If we come to Jesus to have a better life, how do we react when it doesn't go the way we think it should? Maybe your family rejects you. Maybe you get a bad diagnosis from the doctor. Maybe you lose your job. All those things aren't making your life particularly better at that moment. If that's why you came to Christ, what's going to happen? You're going to walk away. John 16, 1 
and 2 says, I have told you these things that you won't fall away. For you will be expelled from the synagogues and a time is coming when those who kill you will think they're doing God a service. Luke 12, 51. Do you think I've come to bring peace on the earth? No, I've come to bring strife and division. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against or the other way around. There will be a division between father and son, mother and daughter, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Notice it doesn't say father-in-law and son-in-law. It's the women thing. Where's the wonderful plan in those statements? Where's the, the joy in those statements? If that's why you came and Jesus is telling you this is going to happen to you, it doesn't seem to equate. What if you're a Christian baker and they put you out of business because you won't make a cake for two guys? Where's the joy and the, and the wonderful life there when you're out of business? John 16, 33 says, Here on earth you will have a wonderful plan. Is that what it says? Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, I have overcome the world. If those things happen to you and you came because someone promised you a better life, someone promised you a wonderful plan, and those things happen to you, what are you going to do? You're going to believe it's not what I signed up for. I didn't come to, I didn't come to be persecuted. I, didn't, I came because I want a better life. I didn't come to have all these things happen to me. So I'm taking the parachute off. The reason Jesus came was to save us from punishment, to save us from hell. That's the reason that Jesus came. Hebrews 9.27 and just as it is destined that each person dies only once, and after that comes judgment. We're all going to be judged at some point. Eventually, everyone dies, and eventually, everyone will stand before God. Everyone. When people come to Jesus because they want joy and not the forgiveness of sins, and they don't understand the need for righteousness, the need to be right with God, the need to be perfect before God, in which none of us can be. I heard an analogy once that when Jesus looks down on you as a believer, he doesn't actually see you because Jesus is standing right here in front of you. He sees Jesus' righteousness, and then it, it's given to you because of Jesus. If we come for the joy and all the goodies, and we don't really see a need to be right with God, in other words, to get rid of our sin, then we don't have a relationship. We come for the bennies, the benefits. There are people that do that now. They attend church, they read their Bible, but they haven't really seen the need to change their life, allow God to change their life, because they came for the blessings, not for the forgiveness of sin. Because once you've been forgiven of sin, you repent of that, you have a desire to end it. Matthew 7.21 makes it pretty clear. It says, not all people who sound religious are really godly. They may refer to me as Lord, but they still won't enter the kingdom of heaven. The decisive issue is whether they obey my Father in heaven. On judgment day, many will tell me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, 
cast out demons in your name and transform many miracles or perform many miracles in your name. But Jesus says, I reply to you, I never knew you. Go away. The things you did were not authorized. I like that version. The things you did were not authorized. Notice these were all outward acts, experiences that people were experiencing. Nowhere in that list of things that they did did they say, we preached the gospel. People were saved. Lives were transformed. No, it's all about doing outward things that people saw. They should have said something to the effect of James 5.20. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way shall save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And the people in Matthew 7, they should have been saying, we preach the gospel and people responded. They, they accepted the forgiveness of sins rather than all the external things that they were doing. We prophesied, we did miracles, we did all these things. And it doesn't say that any of those things were done by God's Spirit. Prophecy. You can all have all kinds of people prophesying stuff. It doesn't say that it was the Spirit making them prophesy. Casting out demons. Perform many miracles. How many know that the enemy can perform miracles? Moses threw his staff down, became a snake. The bad guys threw the staff down and became a snake. The enemy can do miracles if it takes your attention away from Christ. And so all these things, they sound good, but they weren't, and he says, authorized. In other words, they weren't directed by the Holy Spirit. They were from some other spirit. How many have ever heard of the Roman road? It's been around forever. It's what we learned when we were first believers. We went through our new steps class. Here's the Roman road. It's like four or five scriptures you tell people that leads them to Christ. And if we follow that road, it's basically the same thing. We're going to go through them real quickly. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all know that one, right? Everyone, every person who has ever lived except for Jesus has sinned. And since God's requirement is perfection, none of us have met God's standard. Now the next verse isn't technically part of what we've learned as a Roman road, but it, it applies. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Can you, can you kind of get Paul's take on this? He says, there is no one righteous, and he's anticipating somebody saying, well, what about so-and-so? What's he say? There's no one righteous. Stop right there. Not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Again, repeating the fact and doubling down on the fact that everyone is a sinner and everyone will not be in God's presence unless we are forgiven. He wants to make sure that everyone understands that we are not good people. How many have ever heard that? I'm a pretty good person. I'm going to make it. Truth is, you're not. We've all sinned, so we are not good people. What's next? Well, we've all sinners, so wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. The consequence for sinning, the consequence for doing things against God's will, the Bible says, is death. And what is death? Death is separation from God. In other words, hell is separation from God. Right now, we're not separated from God. God's still, the presence is still here. You can be a sinner walking into a church and you can feel God's presence. 
So God's presence is here. When you die and you go to hell, you are now absent from God's presence. That is what absent from God's presence means. There's a saying that I've said it before. If you are a believer, earth is the closest thing you're going to get to hell. If you are an unbeliever, earth is the closest thing you're going to get to heaven. No ambiguity there. No exception. If we sin, the penalty is hell. The next verse tells us the remedy to that sin. And actually, this continuation of the same verse. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. You're a sinner. You're destined for hell. But here is the remedy. Here is the payment. Here is the, here's the medicine you take to get rid of the sin. Jesus. Everyone has a terminal disease that results in our being in hell. How many know that hell is the default position? Whenever you're born, you are destined for hell. That's, that's where everyone's going. Unless God intervenes and you are saved, you come to Christ for the forgiveness of sin. That's everyone's default position. I remember when I was, when I was a kid, I was a, we'd go to visit my, our friends in, in Cane, PA, if you know where that's at, God's country. And they had horses. This was pretty cool. They had horses, and we were able to ride the horses. The problem was the horses never, hardly ever rode. They spent their time in the barn. That was where they, that's where they were comfortable. That's where they went. So my brother and I were out riding the horses, and we finally got them on a gallop. I'm like, this is awesome. This is cool. And we come up to the entrance to the barn, and the horse goes, boom. And I go, boom. Why? The default position for that horse was there. That's where he was going to go. Regardless of what's happening around him, he was going back. Every person who's walking and breathing, our default position is hell, unless we ask God for the forgiveness of sins. That's why we come to Christ. Romans 10:6. but the righteous that is by faith says this, and we skip down to verse 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. The key word there, justified. What does justified mean? It means you are righteous in God's eyes. That because of your acceptance of Christ's payment for you, now God considers you righteous. Imagine you're in court, and you are guilty, and you're going to jail. Someone comes in and either takes your place or pays your fine, does something to let you off the hook, and you go free. It is not because you are righteous, it's not because you're a good person, and it's not because it had been years since you sinned. It's because someone came in and took your place either paid the fine or went to jail for you. That's exactly what Jesus did. And it's more than here. Because everyone, most people believe that Jesus lived. And most people will tell you that, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. But there's a big difference between knowing it here and accepting it here. God, through Jesus Christ, offers the way out of judgment. Jesus paid the debt that we 
rightly owed. Now, does that seem like semantics to you? How many have ever gotten saved by hearing that phrase? Has a wonderful plan for your life. God-shaped hole in your heart. People have gotten saved by those. That's how I got saved. And it wasn't those two. I needed, I needed God's help in something. But I realized that's, that drew me to the cross, but that's not what kept me. God got my attention, and then I had to realize that I came to Christ not for the benefits, but I was a sinner, and I needed to be saved. I needed to avoid judgment when I died. The wonderful life got your attention, but it doesn't keep you. They give a statistic in the video. How many of you are AG from a long time ago? You remember something they called the decade of harvest? I think that was the 90s. It was, a, it was a big evangelistic push throughout the 90s. That was the decade of harvest. We're going to save as much as we can. That was the Assembly of God. That was their stance. The statistic they gave, and I don't remember the numbers, but so many hundreds of thousands of decisions were made for Christ through that decade. But now they only know where about 10,000 of them are because all the other ones fell away. They left. I believe that some of them were promised blessings and joy and happiness, and they came for the benefits. They didn't come because they needed a Savior. And if we come to Christ because we think we want the benefits and we're okay with the sin, we're going to be one of the ones that Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Going back to the parachute example, someone spills hot coffee on you, baby throws up on you, you have a terrible seat partner, doesn't affect why I have the parachute. You come to Christ, your sins are forgiven, you've accepted God's payment for your sin for the sole purpose of escaping the judgment that we're all going to face at some point. That's why we come. And if that's the reason we come, everything else that happens is not going to draw us away from the reason we got saved. If I get sick, if I get cancer, I don't like it, I don't want it, but you know what? It's not why I got saved. I came to Christ because my sins are forgiven. And one day, when I die, I'm not going to faith face God's wrath. How do you convince someone who has a pretty good life now that by adding Christ to their life will make their life better? I know people that their lives are great. Their families are great. They're making money. They have a nice house. Everything's going their way. How do you convince that person that Jesus came to give them joy. They got joy. Jesus came to give you a better life. I got a great life. Jesus came to, to bless you. Hey, I am blessed. Because it's not the reason you come to Christ. 
The person who has everything still is a sinner in need of saving. That's how you approach them. Why is this important? We're all believers. We know this stuff, right? But do we really? How many of us came to Christ on the premise of a better life only? And you really haven't experienced that better life yet. Or a better question, what is your definition of a better life? They asked some people in this video, what's your definition of a wonderful plan or a better life? And they, they give all kinds of various things because it's a pretty generic response. My idea of a better life or a wonderful plan is probably different than your wonderful life or better plan. And it's definitely different from people who don't live in America. What's your idea of a wonderful plan? Hey, how about if I have a place to live and some water to drink? That's my wonderful plan. The problem is when we do that, we don't focus on the issue at hand. And the issue at hand is the need for us to be righteous. The need to be free from the guilt of the sins that we've committed. Because our sins, our inability to keep God's commandments, keep us out. Now there's a saying that says there's one sin that keeps you out, the sin of unbelief. It's true. Well, the one sin is encompassing all the others. When you don't ask Christ for forgiveness, you are now relying on the law to judge you. You're now relying on your obedience to the Ten Commandments, you're being a good person, you're being better than the guy next to you, when in fact, you don't understand, it's not that you're a better person or a bad person, it's that you have sinned against God. Whether you think that's wrong or not, or whether you think that's bad or not, doesn't matter. The Bible clearly states unless you're perfect, you're not going to make it. And so when judgment day comes, when our death comes, are we ready? Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, examine yourself to see if your faith is really genuine. Test yourselves. If you cannot tell that Jesus Christ is among you, it means you have failed the test. What's that mean? It means that there is no noticeable difference in your life from the time you came to Christ to the way you're living now, you have failed the test. If you're the same person that walked the aisle and prayed the prayer and you do the same things years from now, maybe you're not in the faith. Maybe you failed the test. Because there should be a noticeable difference in your life. Every person is different, everyone takes longer, but there should be a level of maturity that you and others can see. When I was going, for, going through the uh, ordination thing, they would send out reference requests to people that I knew. And they would send out reference requests to people that were Christians, and they also sent them out to people who were not Christians that I knew. That was their specific demand. You need to find three people that don't know Christ and give these references to and have them fill them out and send them back. The reason they do that is because they want to see, do you behave differently with your Christian friends than you do with your non-Christian friends? And if the answer is yes, then there's a problem. 
because our light should shine regardless of where we are. And if we have a different standard for one group than we do for another group, maybe we're failing the test. Maybe we're not doing what God called us to do. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he went through a history lesson of Israel's sinful past and then brought it home to him. Acts 2.36, and I'll close with this. It says, so let it be clearly known by everyone in Israel that God has made this Jesus, now look what he did, whom you crucified, to make sure they understood it was their fault, that their sin. So he made him who you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words convicted them deeply. Why were they convicted? Not because of a better life, not because of a promise of blessings. They were convicted because they knew they were sinners. And they knew they needed to be saved, and he says he's the Messiah. And they said to him and the other brothers, or the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must turn from your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of your sin. That was the altar call. There's a sermon years ago, you probably have heard it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How many have ever read the transcript from that? And it was, from what I understand, people in the pews were white-knuckling the pew rack in front of them because they were so afraid of God's judgment. And many people got saved because of that. And it wasn't a sugar-coated, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It was showing them their need for a Savior. It wasn't so God can bless you. That is a benefit. But that's not the reason we come to Christ. Would you stand as we close this morning? If you would bow your heads for a moment. The one verse we read in Matthew where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. That always sends chills down my spine. Because I always want to examine myself to make sure I'm in the faith. And I'm just not putting on a show for everybody else. I want my life to be righteous. If you're here this morning, maybe this is your first time here, or maybe you've been here many, many times, and you came to Christ, or you, you heard about Jesus because of all the blessings that you get when you become a Christian. And you notice that your life really hasn't changed a lot since then, you still do the same things. You still do things you know you shouldn't do. You talk in ways you know you shouldn't talk. You do things that are out of character for a Christian. The Bible says we need to check and examine ourselves to make sure that we came to Christ for the right reason. To repent of our sins and to be forgiven. Or maybe you're here and you've never done that. You've never said any prayer. You've never done anything with God except come to church. Well, this lesson was out of sync with what we've been doing. It was just something God put upon my heart and I think it was for a reason. If you don't have that relationship with Christ, if you don't have your sins forgiven, by accepting Christ's death 
as payment for your sins. Then the Bible says that when you die, you will face judgment before God. And since you have rejected him here, the Bible says he will reject you there. So either of those camps, if you're in that camp, those camps, that you've never really done anything with Jesus, you think you're good enough. Or maybe you did say a prayer at some point, but your life hasn't changed a lot. Both of those are who God's speaking to right now. The Bible says we have no guarantee of tomorrow. And even if we do, the Bible also says that our life goes by very fast. And if you think about putting it off to another date, you may not have that opportunity. So if you're here and you feel the, the pull of God to show you that you need to be forgiven of your sins, I want you to raise your hand right now. All right, I'm going to assume that we are all committed followers of Christ. We have been talking a lot about, as we go through the book of Acts, about being able to share our faith with others. We should really focus upon the person's need for salvation. If you had the opportunity to talk to people in the Twin Towers on the day before 9-11, what would your message to them be? Would you take time to build relationships with them and love them and encourage them and tell them that God has a wonderful plan for their life? Or knowing what you know now, would your message to them be as urgent as possible with the draw card being your sins will be forgiven and you will be with Jesus in paradise. If that's the case for that person, that should be the same case for everyone we talk to. That we should be able to tell them the truth and that God would give us the boldness and the opportunity to do that. That we will not waste time waiting for a better time, waiting for a better day, waiting for a better opportunity. Because we don't know if that opportunity or time is going to come. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge you've put in our lives. And we thank you that, God, our sins have been forgiven. And that when our time comes and we leave this earth, the Bible says, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We know that we will instantly be with you for eternity. And we will escape the wrath of God. Hallelujah. So Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Continue our lives every day to be a reflection of that knowledge. I pray that, Lord, you would give us the joy that comes with the knowledge that 
no matter what happens here, man, my God is in control. And regardless of what happens to me now, I know that what I'm going to be in eternity in perfection with Jesus. Fill us with your spirit. Let your Holy Spirit drill that truth into our hearts and our minds and into our spirit. And allow us to live our lives with that knowledge every day. Because what I think if we have that knowledge in our remembrance every day would help us to live better for you. So Lord, pour your anointing and blessing upon each person here. Allow us to experience the joy that you promised, not as the draw card, not as the, the promise to come to Jesus, but as a result of already knowing Jesus. Now, Lord, keep us safe this week. Open up doors of opportunity for us and allow us to be missional in our attempt to share Jesus with people we come in contact with. And, Lord, I commit each person to you to that end. And it's in Jesus' name we do it. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a tremendous week. See you here on Wednesday or and next Sunday.